From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Mountain climber Phil Henderson of Cortez returns to Everest to lead the first all-black expedition to that 29,000-foot peak. We have people of color who are looking for leaders, people who have experience in the outdoors, and they're hard to find. And so I fit a niche that a lot of people are seeking. Coming up, we'll also talk climate change and Everest crowds. Then, forced to choose between paying rent and putting food on the table, some Coloradans resort to sleeping in their cars. Financial situation that most of us find ourselves living in is very difficult to get out of. We begin a special series on housing instability. And Colorado Matters turns 20. So we'll queue up some of our favorite interviews. Today, the Lumineers on vocal imperfections and lyrical perfection. This is Alan from Golden. CPR is just so worthy that I felt really good about giving up my car to them. I donated my battered SUV, and CPR was able to receive more than three times what I would have gotten for it if I had just traded it in. Learn how to make your own impact with the vehicle donation on the support page at CPR.org. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Nine American climbers will make history next spring as the first all-black expedition to climb Mount Everest. Summoning the world's highest peak is a feat accomplished only by one black American to date. The Full Circle Everest team includes three Coloradans. Its leader is 58-year-old Philip Henderson of Cortez. And Phil, so glad you could join us. Thanks for having me. Why organize an all-black Everest expedition? Because we we are kind of at the same level. And, you know, I had the experience of going to Everest, and I really want to share that experience and open that opportunity up to other people, you know, that look like me. And we kind of just fell into each other's presence, in a sense, through other folks or through climbing. And you said there, having people on Everest with you who look like you— Talk to me about the importance of that and maybe the infrequency of that in climbing. Uh, Well, I mean, for me personally, the infrequency of that is almost a lifetime. I've had expeditions where I've been with other black people, but most of those were in Africa. And then I actually ran another trip for uh, an all-black team to Kilimanjaro in 2018. A lot of times what it is is we have folks that are people of color who are looking for leaders, people who have experience in the outdoors, and they're hard to find. And so I fit a bill, I I fit a niche that a lot of people are seeking. And so I kind of own that, you know? I feel like I'm kind of obligated to be that person. And it kind of fits my, my personality as well. I wanna do and provide opportunities for other people, just like people have provided opportunities for me. What happens and what they do with those is kind of up to them. But having the experience and being able to talk about those experiences with the communities in which they come from, I think, is really a good key into increasing that representation that we're lacking right now. And why do you think there is an underrepresentation of Black folks in climbing, maybe in outdoor sports in general? Yeah, I think it goes again back to representation but also about um, how history has been told. 
our histories haven't been told. There's a lot of people like myself who are out there doing things in the outdoors. They always have. We just haven't heard about them. Um, we've kind of been sidelined and marginalized for a long time. But even just yesterday, I was having a conversation with someone and I said, sometimes what's missing in terms of our culture and those kind of things is even just a voice, just a familiar voice that sounds like your mother or your father or someone who looks like you. Hmm. That can be a comforting thing when when the chips are down, when the weather's bad and you could have a conversation with someone that resonates with you in your lifetime that puts you over that edge. When you don't have that opportunity, or maybe that's one of those times where someone says something that's what we call, quote unquote, a microaggression, and then that just sends you downhill. So there's a lot of reasons to increase the representation. I think the reason why there is the lack of it is because our stories haven't been told. I remember speaking with an essayist some time ago who has reflected a lot on what it is to be Black in the out-of-doors. And, you know, she pointed to the fact that the forest in particular was unsafe in this country for so long for Black people. Uh, the risk of violence, the the risk of lynchings. Um, do you think that history has something to do with it as well? Does that resonate oh. with you? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things because that history, it may not be true for me, but it may be true for my father or that next generation behind. And so one of the things that we also have to kind of get over is that family pressure or community pressure that tells you you're doing something that you shouldn't be doing. Hmm. That stuff's dangerous. You know, the people out there are dangerous. And so it's like telling your child you shouldn't climb a tree. Right? Get down from there. You're going to hurt yourself. Don't go do that, right? Because that is your experience. And so, yeah, there's a lot more to it. That is, that is true for a lot of people. You talked about microaggressions on the trail. I don't want you to have to, in any way, re-inflict yourself with the pain of that. But are there examples you could cite, you feel comfortable citing, of what Black hikers and climbers deal with, the kinds of behavior you'd like to put a stop to? An example, um, you know, I've been, again, in the outdoors for 30, almost 30 years, yep. and I know what crampons are, but just simply because I'm a black person and I go into a store or a retail shop, or whatever, where they're selling those things and I'm looking at them, a lot of times people will say, oh, those are crampons, they're used for walking on ice, but they just assume that I don't know what those things are. Or there's also been times where it's assumed that I don't even know what it is, so they don't even bother to talk to me because of it. What makes a climber ready to go to Everest? And how ready are you and your team? We're ready. What makes a person ready for Everest? You've got to put in the work. You know, you need to have time in the mountains. A lot of your comfortability and the things you need to do in the mountains need to be second nature. You'd be used to putting on a pack and hiking for hours, 10, 12, 15 hours, 40, 50 pounds on your back, and know that you can struggle through that and push yourself through that. You need to know how to manage risk. There's a lot that goes in. And so what I've looked at in our team is that most of the folks on our team have been to 6,000 meters or above. They've been out in the backcountry for a month, two weeks. They've been on expeditions before, and that really helps. I, I want to talk about like how crowded Everest is these days. There's just so much attention on that 
right now in that viral photograph. Do you remember that, Phil, of a line of climbers waiting to yeah. get to the summit? Yeah. I'm wondering if that makes Everest a less appealing goal. Would you share your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think Everest is a less appealing goal to a lot of people. And I, I know that we're in media right now or <laughs> something, but I think a lot of that has to do with media because what we normally see is we see four days of every season. And that's what you're seeing is those lines of those four days is that's less appealing, but you don't see the other 65 days of that season mm -hmm. where you're acclimating and you're going up and down the mountain where there's far less lines and you're enjoying yourself and you're seeing people you haven't seen in 20 years that you didn't expect to see on the mountain. You know, there's a social aspect to it. And if you go to a lot of these seven summits around the world, they are social mountains. Yeah, they're still hard to climb, but they're really fun to be on because you, there's people from all over the world. So really what it is, is that there's another aspect of Everest that people don't see. The seven summits, meaning the tallest mountains on each of the That's continents. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm curious about your personal journey to becoming an elite climber. You played, I believe, more traditional sports growing up. What changed? What brought climbing? Yeah, baseball. Into yeah, I played baseball, football. You know, and like most kids like me do. Till I was in college, I had an injury, and um, and that injury left me, you know, disabled for a year or more. During that time, I just had time to reflect on my young life at the time. That was, you know, twenty-two years. But I realized at a very young age that life is short and that it could stop at any moment. And so you should do whatever it is that you want to do in life while you can. And, and what exposed you to climbing? Uh, long story, but um, you know, through a little bit of time spent at state parks and kind of learning that there was an industry in the outdoors, because I didn't grow up with that. I didn't know what that actually meant. You know, back in the late 80s, early 90s, and I, I was in a store buying a pair of boots, and it was a North Face store. And I asked the guy, how do you learn more of these outdoor things, this stuff in the outdoors? And he gave me two telephone numbers, and one was to Knowles and one to the Outward Bound. And, uh, uh, Knowles is the uh, National Outdoor Leadership School. Yeah. Yeah. And the, cat and the Knowles catalog came in the mail first. Huh. I don't even remember seeing the Outward Bound catalog. But when I looked at that catalog, I realized that there's all these other things that you can do in life. Does the sports injury you suffered at 22 ever reemerge when you're climbing? No. Okay, no, go it good. Is. No, it doesn't, yeah. Okay, I'm pleased to hear it. How much thought do you give to climate change and your own carbon footprint when you're in these really sensitive yeah. alpine environments, Phil? Yeah, I recognize my connection and my impact. Am I perfect? No, not at all, you know, but... I try to be aware of how I'm impacting, you know, whether that be in the environment or other people, other cultures, things like that. So what do I think about climate change? Well, when, you know, when you've traveled the world multiple times, uh, give you an example, I was in Kenya for a year, over a year, 2000 into 2001. And, you know, multiple, more than a dozen trips on Mount Kenya, and they have permanent ice fields and basically glaciers, ice caves, and so on. That was in 2000. When I went back in 2010, that ice was gone. Didn't exist. Was no longer there. Hmm. Kilimanjaro, the same thing. I went to Kilimanjaro 18 years apart. I happened to go to Everest, and I know I only went to Camp 3, 
But I know that year from other teammates, it's like 27,000 feet, there's running water. Went to Denali in 2005. I went back again in 2013. And knowing that uh, there's a, a spot on the hill called Windy Corner that folks say that had never seen bare ground until 2012 or 13. So when you travel and you go in these places that a lot of people don't see, don't visit, and you do that multiple times, years apart, you see the effects of what we can consider climate change or different weather patterns. Um, so it, to me, it exists. And so I try to encourage other people to educate themselves and understand what impact that they can have on that. So I think of the climate scientists who came on the show, this is a couple of years ago now, who refuses to fly anymore. He just won't fly. And in fact, he, I recall him being Dutch and he got a job in Colorado and he managed to take a boat because he didn't want to fly because it's so carbon intensive. Do you give that thought to travel? Yeah, I do give that thought to travel, but more so I give that thought to my everyday life. Like we all love to ski and climb and, you know, to do the things that we love to do and go to different places to do it. But I've also asked myself, what am I willing to give up for my pursuit of these things that I do? Mm. And basically, I don't really have to give up much because I've never needed them. I'm happy just going out and skiing the small hill that's just an hour away from my house or going biking, you know, over here that's only 10 minutes away. I don't have to drive two hours to be able to do those things because that's not what feeds me. What feeds me is just getting outside. And so you bring a balance in a way to yeah. uh, some of these big trips yeah. and then daily yeah. life. And again, like I say, I'm not perfect, yeah? I've been to Nepal nine times, I'm about to go back again. <laughs> um, but on a day-to-day basis, that's what I think where I can really be conscious of my impact. Before we go, what is it about being outdoors and pursuing outdoor sports that speaks to you and that you hope to inspire and and really have tried all your life to inspire another people. What is it? Is it the activity? Is it about nature? It's all of those things, you know. I've looked at activities that I really enjoy doing that I, I focus on and I like things that help me not to think. I have to focus on those things. Right. Hmm. When I'm mountain biking, it's like I'm focused 30 feet out in front of me. I'm not really thinking much else when I'm coming down a hill. If I'm flying a kite, I'm thinking about where my kite is and where the wind is, where my wind window is. I'm not really thinking about anything else. The other thing for me is that um, I really feel alive when I'm in the outdoors. You know, when it's blowing and snowing hard, I'm happy because I feel like I'm actually living and I don't need to run away and go inside when like I can't deal with this. I want to go out in it. And everyone's going to find their place in that. Not everyone's going to like the things that I do and do them when I want to do them, but find their own place, you know, and that could be sunny on the beach for some folks, but maybe they'll learn something. They'll, they'll educate themselves in that sense. Some other folks, it might be bird watching in a park, but other folks, it's going to be climbing. I love technical things. I like doing things with my hands, whether that's building a wooden box or placing a cam in a crack. To me, what you get out of it is very similar. Well, I don't think I'll be climbing Everest, but I'm certainly willing and happy to fly a kite, Phil. So I maybe I'll take you up on that offer. Thank yeah. you so much for talking to us, and uh, good luck next spring. Yeah, next spring. Next spring. Awesome. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.
Phil Henderson of Cortez will lead the first all-black Everest expedition next spring. He's one of three Colorado climbers on that team. The general rule is that you shouldn't spend more than a third of your income on housing, a rule that's become almost laughable given Colorado's high rents. So where do people end up when they have to choose between paying rent and eating? CPR's Sarah Mulholland met folks who've resorted to living out of their cars. About 10 people call this parking lot behind a church in Arvada home. But it's not the way most people think of home. They can't hang out there during the day. But it's where they sleep at night, in their cars. Up until a couple days ago, Mitchell Robertson parked their white Ford van in any public lot they could find at night, as long as there weren't any signs prohibiting it. They just got a spot behind the church. It's a lot quieter. I sleep with a little less anxiety, knowing that it's not just an open parking lot out in a shopping center somewhere where any old random person can come through doing whatever. The lot's run by the Colorado Safe Parking Initiative. They provide safe places for people experiencing homelessness to sleep in their cars. The state's housing costs skyrocketed over the past decade with the population boom. And the trend shows no signs of slowing. That's forcing more people to take extreme measures to get by. It's not always obvious why somebody ends up sleeping in their car. It could be domestic violence or substance abuse. It could be a mental health crisis or really any kind of health crisis. It might be a job loss. It's hard to pinpoint one thing that pushed the people here in Arvada to live in their cars. But once somebody ends up in this situation, for whatever reason, it's easy to get stuck financial situation that most of us find ourselves living in is very difficult to get out of. Robertson works part-time at a Best Buy in Westminster, on the Geek Squad, mostly fixing laptops and setting up new PCs. First electronic I remember taking apart was uh, one of the original Nintendos. Um, A spring was sticking so the cartridges wouldn't stay down. Robertson came to Colorado a little more than a year ago, after riding out the start of the pandemic in Utah at their mom's house. Robertson's had a lot of jobs over the years. They were at Lowe's just before Best Buy. At one point, they managed a bookstore. I'm not one to want to just sit in a corner somewhere and do nothing. They figure they need about $1,500 to cover the first month's rent and deposit on an apartment in Denver, plus a little extra just to get settled. Their goal is to have a place by winter. Starting pay on the Geek Squad is $16 an hour. Better than minimum wage. But Robertson says it's still tough to save enough cash for housing. If I didn't have to spend money on gas and insurance and phone bill and everything, because I still have bills, you know, I still function in this society with everything I have to pay for. On top of eating, and yeah, it's taken some time to get the money together. They want more hours at Best Buy, but say there aren't any full-time roles available. V. Reeves is a caseworker for the Safe Parking Initiative. Reeves talks about how tough it is to break the cycle once a person loses their housing. We take for granted that feeling of safety and of peace that we come home to at the end of the day. And that is really fuel for things like good sleep, for being able to plan for the next day, you know, uh, being able to rest mentally so that you can actually have the foresight to see things into the future. Because when you're in a state of trying to figure out where you're going to go and where you're going to stay that night, you don't have, you don't have that. 
Reeves brings food and helps people with things like navigating the healthcare system and finding housing. Reeves recently helped get Jonathan Severs into a small one-bedroom apartment in a squat brick building in North Denver. He was living out of his car in a church parking lot in Golden. I was there the day he moved in. There's hardly any boxes to unpack. But there's a package of brand new pots and pans on the kitchen counter. I'm ready to cook again. So, you know, being in the car for the last 12 months, uh, you kind of miss the little things. So (laughs) just being able to be organized and being able to cook for myself, um, that's what I'm happy about. Severs has serious health issues. Last year, he was on dialysis for six months back in Kentucky. That's where he's from. He moved into a hotel when he got out of the hospital, and he was doing odd jobs to get by. You know, I was doing DoorDash and Uber Eats at the time just to kind of survive, but, uh, you know, I was barely paying my weekly bill there at the hotel, and, and I just didn't see myself getting on top and ahead. So he decided to take off in his car to save money and see the country. It was harder than he expected. He almost totaled his car in New Mexico. And then he ended up in the hospital again here in Colorado. The Safe Parking Initiative helped him work with Medicaid to pay off thousands of dollars in bills from that recent hospital stay. He says it's an amazing program. Can't say enough about that, how what they've done, so... Sorry. <laughs> but I... Yeah. Oh, so you're happy to be here. Yes. Severs recently started work at a mobile kitchen filling takeout orders. He says it's a steady job and the pay is good. He's glad to have a set schedule and he's hopeful he'll be able to save some money in his new situation. Trying to get back to where I used to be. Today, he's really looking forward to cooking a big pot of chili. I'm Sarah Mulholland, CPR News. And our series on housing instability continues throughout the week right here. Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with something that's only a little gauche, telling everyone it's our birthday. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. An informed citizenry is at the heart of a dynamic democracy. Thomas Jefferson wrote those words more than 230 years ago. But it's especially true now as we face three questions on our statewide ballots for 2021. I'm Rachel Estabrook, CPR News Director, and CPR News is here to help you be informed and participate in democracy. Even in an off election year like this one, we have your back. Come to CPR.org now for the 2021 Voter's Guide. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. One of my favorite moments hosting this show involved Denver band The Lumineers. In 2016, Wesley Schultz and Jeremiah Freights were telling me about their band's name, which is also a brand name for dental products. Kind of a bummer for online search. What will come up first is this dental veneer company, and they're paying a lot of money to come up first on those Wait, results. really? You guys aren't first? No, because they're they're bribing Google. The, Legally bribing. Okay, wait, hold on. I'm look, Lumineers. I want to try this. They should be at the top of those. Like, at no, least... you guys really? You guys have moved you on, past the, the veneers. No. Yeah. Let Even me show you the, the screen. Up top? Yeah. The Lumineers, on oh, sale now, buy tickets. Maybe they gave up. Look up The Lumineers. The Lumineers. Lumineers teeth, that comes up first in the automatic. Nope, it's you guys. You have made it. Yeah. This is the day. I'm so glad I could be here for this moment. (laughs) I've always wanted to 
beat the dental community out. <laughs> it's always been a little dream. Fun to watch the Lumineers grow up. I've also watched Colorado Matters grow up. The show just turned 20. Our debut under founding host Dan Dreher was in 2001. And we'll hear from Dan later this week to see what he's up to, have him share some of his favorite memories. And here and there for the next year, we'll mine gems from our archives, an audio vault going back two decades. Today, more from that 2016 Lumineers interview. Here we go. The Lumineers hit it big with songs like Ho Hey and Stubborn Love. Now, four years after their debut release, the Denver band has put out its sophomore album. Oh, Ophelia, you've been on my mind, girl, since the flood. Some of the songs, like this one, Ophelia, are meditations on the band's fast rise to fame and what comes next. Keep in mind their first album went platinum plus. They were nominated for Grammys. The president even included one of their tracks on his Spotify playlist. I sat down with singer and guitarist Wesley Schultz and Jeremiah Freights, who plays drums and piano. Here's Wesley on the band's success. For me, I feel actually pretty pretty okay about it all. Nothing really broke for me until I was nearly 30. So I think that alone, I'd sort of formed some idea of who I am and who I was at the time. That if You're not a child star, in other words. Yeah. And to be honest, if I was 18 or 19, I had enough trouble dealing with it around 30. It's really, it's just an odd thing to have people treat you, I guess, sort of differently and look at you differently. Um, It can go to people's heads. I can see how it would. But um, for me, I, I didn't really take it seriously because I stopped taking Uh, seriously, the sort of lack of anything happening and as though that was some indicator of that we weren't doing good things before anything broke. I see. That is to say you took the lull that was before this uh, with a grain of salt and you're applying the same to fame. Yeah, just the idea of, uh, I just like the idea of keeping your own score about your life and, and the things that you're doing in it and not having not turning to some external keeper of that, you know, like, a oh, this album's not half as good because it sold half the amount of records. I know that to be false, you know, by mm. by bands that I listen to and like anyway. So, you know, Thaniel Rayleigh would be a good example of someone who's been doing it at a high level for a long time. And now he's getting levels of recognition uh, that I think could have came to him way back when we first moved here I don't know, six years ago? Yeah, Nathaniel Rateliff, who's now with the the Night Sweats. That's his latest uh, iteration. He's been with Born in the Flood before that. Uh, Jeremiah, on this notion of of success, whether there's a curse to it, it's pure blessing. I think it's a pure blessing in that uh, it's prompted me to kind of frame my thinking differently. I think when we were the underdog, I never stopped and appreciated anything we were doing because we were always, me and Wes, driving the band writing the songs, we always were trying to get the next gig. And for me, one of the things I always wanted to do was play Red Rocks and collectively between Wes and myself, played Letterman and go to Europe. And I thought between those three things, I thought that would give us maybe a decade of hard work to do it. And we did it, you know, arguably too quickly to the point where, all right, well, I'm running out of checkpoints. I should just stop and really appreciate what's happening because this is incredible. And Stopping to appreciate things and take a deep breath was not really in my forte. I think it was more 
don't appreciate what I did yesterday. What can I do with Wes tomorrow and today? We have an audience that was never there prior to the first album that's sort of waiting for what we're going to do next and how they feel about it's out of our control. But just the idea that anyone would be waiting uh, for us, whether it's at a show where it sells out early or at all, or an album that people are interested in hearing, I think it's, uh, to me, I'd, I'd welcome that pressure. And I think mm. it's, a, it's really you know, a blessing in, in that way. Well, even people who, you know, perhaps weren't intimately familiar with your first album certainly were familiar with your first single, Ho mm. Hey, uh, because it was played so much on radio stations across the country. I've been trying to do it right. I've been living a lonely life. I've been sleeping here instead. I've been sleeping in my bed. Did you get sick of that song? No, never. I mean, they're all our children. And, uh, B- people get sick of their children sometimes. <laughs> sick of it, though. <laughs> That's true. Maybe that was a bad metaphor. I'm not a parent, but uh, I don't think I've ever been sick of any of our music. I think that I think I became sick of three years of touring. I really wanted to get back to to writing um, music with Wes. I felt like that was something that was getting lost in the endless touring. But, you know, songs like Ho Hey and Stubborn Love, they really opened up the keys, gave us the keys to the world. They allowed us to tour in new and foreign countries and allowed us to uh, shine light on the rest of the songs off that album. We would stick it second or third in every set eventually because we had a whole album that we were proud of and we, we connected with. And I felt like if that's what you're here for, then here, I'll, I'll make it easy for you. And then you can leave after that or you can stay and see what else is on this record. Mm. I've been to shows where the person holds back the big songs till the end. And I always resented that. Or don't that. play them at all. <laughs> yeah. And I sort of resented that. Uh, so for me, I wanted to say, hey, I recognize that some people maybe came with a friend and aren't familiar with the whole catalog, but let's just put it out here for you. And then you can make your own decision later. But it turned out to be, I think, a helpful thing because people did realize that there was a full record there and to be listened to. So basically four years between the first and the second album. And that was, I guess, Jeremiah, because of the touring. There was just such an emphasis on that. We tried to write, but it was difficult to do it remotely. It just wasn't in our wheelhouse. We were trying to not lose that that muscle of songwriting because that was a big fear. You know, tour two and a half, three years, and then you're supposed to just go back in the studio and start working out again. And if you let that muscle atrophy, it's it's dangerous territory. Well, gosh, we should hear some more music. So why don't we listen to more of Ophelia? This is the the second verse. I, I got a new girlfriend. Feels like he's on top. And I don't feel no remorse. And you can't see past my blood. This is a song about falling in love, but it's not falling in love with a a person, I understand. Yeah, so Ophelia was written in this sort of stream of consciousness way, and it was about falling in love with the fame or the attention side of things that's so temperamental and so temporary in the music world. You're the bright, shiny toy for a period of time, and then then the baby's going to pick out another one, and you're just going to have to deal with that. (laughs) And so for me, I never really wanted to fall in love with any of that because I always viewed it as, you know, someone kind of liking you for something that's not necessarily all you. It's Mm -hmm. the moment. 
You two kind of locked yourself away in a house in Denver to write this new album. It was a house sort of hidden in plain sight in uh, in Denver and nothing particularly that special about it other than it was going to allow us to do what we originally were doing. You know, all of our lives was writing music together in very plain and ordinary circumstances. You know, there's this old upright piano that uh, actually got sent out from my old house in Ramsey, New Jersey, where we both grew up. And we've written a lot of stuff on that because it's just kind of this old dirtbag piano, for lack of a better description. <laughs> Is it in tune? Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes. Okay. It's in tune and it gets the job done. And there's something about it that's just great. So that was the staple. And then Wes had all his guitars on these racks and we had a computer to record the ideas and microphones. But it's mostly me and a piano, Wes and a guitar. And once the song starts to get legs in that environment, you know, very stripped down, open mic style, then we start to flesh it out. We never ever go into Pro Tools or the recording environment thinking, let's lay this down and we'll, we'll figure it out later in post-production. We'll add delay or mm. insane drums. It's always a very simple idea that has to reveal itself. And so by the time you get to the studio, it's pretty much laid out. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty well formed, most of the album. Yeah, the only song that didn't follow that formula of being done before going into the studio is Angela. The strangers in this town They raise you up just to cut you down Oh, Angela, it's a long time coming When we were going to rent the house in Denver, it was in the same neighborhood that we originally moved to. We were walking around with the, the lady showing us, and then we're like, we're going to be honest... We're in a band, and we're going to be making music here, and her face just dropped. We were already, like, exed, you know. We were out at that point. And so she's kind of, like, not really going to rent it to us. And I was like, no, we're, we're going to work normal hours. We don't have jobs. This is our job. Uh, we're in the Lumineers. And, and she just was like, wait, what? And then she started coming around. Maybe she would rent us this house. <laughs> and then we kept really normal business hours. We would work, you know, 9 to 5 or 10 to 6. And so the neighbors never knew what we were doing in there once. No one ever knocked on the door to tell us to turn it down. Like Jared was saying, it was kind of hidden in plain sight in the sense of they would never suspect that someone would be working on an album. The way we make songs is so small. You know, it starts in such a small way that you don't really hear someone wailing on drums most of the day. So it was kind of a funny experience to one of the few times we've name-dropped to try to get something. And it worked. It, it worked, yeah. Wesley, I want to ask you a little bit about your vocals. So on the track... Ophelia, and then on another one, Long Way From Home, you let your voice crack. It seems like a vulnerable thing to do as a vocalist. Is And I don't know, is it a flaw in your voice or is it just a quality of your voice? How do you perceive it? It's something I really like about my voice. I listen to, I think it's called Mother, John Lennon. Mother, you held me, but I never held you. That whole... And then he, his voice starts to break throughout that song, and that's one of the things I admired about his uh, ability to push his voice to the limit to where it's breaking. It's actually kind of distorting. And uh, I remember seeing a comment from someone saying that there's a, actually a vocal issue on some social media thing about the recording engineer must have screwed up because there's a clip in Ophelia, and it's not. It's just my voice actually kind of Naturally reaching, doing pushing that. to the max. and. So it makes for an interesting moment every night singing that moment too, but I really like going there. The Lumineers join us from another place and time to celebrate 20 years of Colorado Matters. We've mined the archive 
for some of our favorite interviews. This one with Wesley Schultz and Jeremiah Freights comes from 2016. Exciting news, a new album from the Lumineers is on its way, and they already released a video for the title track, Bright Side. Let's hear a little of that as we go to break. More of the Encore conversation coming up on CPR News and KRCC. I could see it in the air Everyone was like smoke from a cigarette You were blowing in your hands The heat had broken the Oldsmobile Strictly speaking, in Colorado, a buffalo is a collegiate athlete from Boulder, whereas a bison is the great hulking, humped, and hoofed animal that once covered the Great Plains. Tens of millions of them. A distant relative of the true buffaloes of Asia and Africa, the American bison has always played a role in our nation's story. Native people knew every part of the bison had value. Many settlers moving westward thought otherwise. And by 1900, the continent's largest mammal was at the edge of extinction. But conservation efforts soon kicked in. In 1914, the city of Denver established a herd of bison with two from the zoo and a few more from Yellowstone. Today, you can see their descendants alongside I-70 in Genesee Park. And in the San Luis Valley, a herd of 2,000 roaming a 50,000-acre pasture. A Colorado Postcard from Colorado Public Radio. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Our show is almost old enough to drink. We're marking our 20th year on the air. And to celebrate, we put on hard hats, turned on our headlamps, and descended into the cave where we keep our old interviews. Just kidding, it's a CD cabinet in the hallway. Anyhow, today we're listening back to a 2016 interview with the Lumineers, who've only gotten bigger in the years since. At the time, they just released the album Cleopatra. Wesley had also recently lost his father, which is reflected in several tracks. Grief seems to be something of a motivator for the Lumineers. I mean, you said that you grew up in Ramsey, New Jersey, both of you. Um, You make Denver your home now. But, uh, Wesley, you were close friends with Jeremiah's older brother, Josh, who passed away in his late teens. And I understand, uh, Jeremiah, that that incidents really led you to music and, and finding solace in it. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's not so easy as, you know, the passing of that <clears throat> occurrence and then I discovered music. You know, I went through a lot of years of not really caring about anything and having a lot of anger and sadness and not really understanding what to do with all that grief. So I think, I think throughout high school and then into college around that time meeting Wes, it was like this big buildup of, I just kind of threw myself, trying to throw myself into something positive and constructive because with that amount of grief, your system is overloaded and doesn't know what to do. Turning life experiences into to music is great. I mean, whether it's something big, like losing a family member prematurely, or whether it's waiting in line at the bank and seeing something interesting from another customer. It's like... Wait, has that happened? Have you written a song based on a bank trip? No, I have not written a song, but I've been in (laughs) banks or maybe a Safeway uh, shopping line and you just see things that are so minuscule in the grand scheme of life that are so fascinating and interesting that David Byrne talked about, like he says love is too big of an idea to him and he talks about writing about like a lamp or something and (laughs) it's just kind of an interesting take. I mean, he's a profound lyricist. He knows that, but he's also kind of poking fun at 
don't take life too seriously. There's, there's like the minuscules, beautiful too, I think. And David Byrne from Talking Heads. Yeah, I feel like a lot of that, um, not the irony, I feel like we never use that word correctly, but the odd thing about songwriting is that uh, the more you can tell your story and the details of that story, it's funny, but people seem to sort of take them on as their own. And, yeah. and, and it's inspiring. It makes you want to, as an artist, dig deeper and go deeper because it, it's a good cathartic thing to have, have happen. There's a lot of imagery in the song, uh, Gun Song. It was a pistol, a Smith and Wesson. Holy, holy shit. La 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 la. This song was also in the time when my dad had just passed away. And uh, so soon after that, that the, the clothes were still in his drawers. And so I was running late for work and realized I didn't have black socks and I knew I'd be sent home without those. So You were a waiter or something? Yeah, I was a bartender at a, a pretty crappy job. And um, I ended up reaching into his sock drawer in a hurry. I was running late and uh, unexpectedly pulling out his pistol that I didn't know he ever had or had in there, much less. I was disappointed that I couldn't ask him about it. That was the first emotion. And the second was, what else did I know about this person that I was supposedly so close with? And then it became true that that was true of any relationship I had. You know, we, we have these different things that we don't share. And uh, I also, from a standpoint of lyrics, it was it was an interesting song because each verse sort of takes on this, um, it says, I don't want a single gun, but if I did, you'd be the one to hold it, aim it. And you think it's all of a sudden a bad thing. And then it says, make all the bad men run, like protecting me. I don't own a single gun. But if I did, you'd be the one. The whole it ain't it, make all of the bad men run. But I don't. So each verse kind of takes that on, that challenge of presenting something and then almost like a funhouse mirror, shifting it into this brand new direction. I try to do that on each verse uh, lyrically. People are going to say you're a band, uh, you know, based in Colorado. This is about gun control. <laughs> I guess they will. Yeah, it's, I think it's an important thing that we all <laughs> need to talk about, but the, the, the song wasn't written with an intention like that. I think that happens a lot in politics and, and music. Well, speaking of, of names, so that's Gun Song. Um, I want to get to the name of the Lumineers. I understand that it was not your name to begin with, and in fact, you took it on kind of by accident, Jeremiah. Yeah, we were uh, sort of given the name. You know, you don't really, you don't choose your first name when you're born, and it's kind of the same thing. We were under a different moniker at the time. and Which was? Uh, which was Wesley Jeremiah. Wesley Jeremiah, deeply creative. Really? Wow. <laughs> right? Yeah. We just <laughs> forgot the word band at the end of that. <laughs> Which yeah. proved to be a troublesome name at times because the sound guy, you know, it, he would think it was one person showing up and it, it was not one person. It was Is a there f- a Wesley Jeremiah in the house in yeah. other words? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I see. Okay. So, yeah, the guy said, uh, up next, Lumineers are playing. And I think Wes politely corrected him and said, you know, that's not our name, but we would start playing our set. And then maybe that night or a couple of days after, we thought, what was that name? That was pretty cool. So the the real Lumineers at the time did not show up and you just kind of went on stage? 
Yeah, so they were there the next week, the same slot. Uh, you know, he just had his weeks mixed up, which is odd in, its, in and of itself because you never really have an announcer at shows. It's like a 1950s idea of like, up next, we have the Lumineers. Like it wasn't, that never happens at clubs, but for some reason it was at this particular club. And he was on the wrong week on his pages. So so is there some dude who who still thinks of himself as the Lumineer? Uh, it's a good question. I mean, we looked them up. We added the... So it became the Lumineers and never really expected to use it because that's just the essence of how you think. We weren't thinking that far ahead. We just thought it sounds good. It fits. We'll figure it out later. And for Um, anyone that's ever tried to come up with band names, it's a horrible, agonizing process. Everything sounds stupid and it's just... It's bad. It's really hard. We were pretty good at making bad band names. But uh, the other thing about it was uh, they stole it from a, a dental veneer company. What I find remarkable about this latest album is that the instrumentation is really pretty straightforward, but the sound is huge. I think that so much of the credit needs to go to Ryan Hewitt, the engineer of this album. He really dialed in these sounds and tones and just overall aesthetic to a degree that I didn't think could exist. Are you playing really hard on the instruments? Sometimes, yeah, and that really can elicit a better sound. You know, a for example, a light like snare drum versus a loud hit snare drum will be recorded differently. Even though in post you can turn up the volume, you want to be recording it at its optimal intensity. And I think that they found a great room for Wes to do vocals and sometimes vocals and guitar together. Mm. And that can really break through that the barrier between listener and, and writer. Things like that were implemented in just such a smart way. Yeah, and if I could just piggyback off that, I think there was an onus put on what sounds were going into the mic, not what we could do with them once they were recorded. So a lot of time was spent, like scientists, testing out different amps until we got the one. I tried six or seven different vocal mics before we settled on the one. It was this weird Russian mic. And I think putting an onus on that means it's kind of less work at the end of the day, but it also sounds better because you're not in post putting all these effects on things and trying to give them steroids. They're already sounding big, uh, naturally. It's a weird Russian mic? Is it Soviet? It's I don't think old. it's that old. Okay, okay. Yeah. No, it's it's this white Russian mic that I probably couldn't pronounce uh, that just happened to sound good when I would sing on it versus the other ones. And while the church discouraged any lust it burned within me Yes, my flesh It was my currency But I had truth Taxi and the traffic distracts me from the strangers in my backseat. They remind me you. The Lumineers, we dug up that 2016 conversation to celebrate two decades of Colorado Matters and will unearth more gems from the archives in the months ahead. By the way, Stephanie Wolf produced that interview. Steph is now an arts reporter at Louisville Public Media in Kentucky. Speaking of voices from our past, one of them is coming back for a little while. My former co-host Nathan Heffel returns to Colorado Matters while Avery Lill takes some time off. Nathan left the show in 2018 for NPR in Washington, and now he's back. That's how much Colorado matters. Okay, that was cheesy. Hi, Nathan. (laughs) Hey, Ryan, how are you? I'm doing well. (laughs) Glad that you're back with us for a time. You're living in Newcastle, just west of Glenwood Springs. 
That's right. And I'm really excited to bring interviews and stories from the Western Slope and around Colorado. And like Avery, I'll be hosting Tuesdays and Thursdays and already working on some really good segments. Oh, like what? Well, tomorrow you're going to hear my interview with the new head of the Colorado Tourism Office and how there really has been a reset priority-wise since the pandemic upended everything. We certainly had to pivot from our strategic plan, but now we're shifting back to the international strategies. With the vaccination requirements for international travel starting November 8th, we see that as a big opportunity to try to, to drive some of those tourists back. And there's also my upcoming conversation with a collegiate national champion mountain biker from Colorado Mesa University in Grand Junction. She's got a really great story to tell. Plus, I'm exploring a unique story on uh, composting bodies, Mm. specifically how a new state law allows someone to be composted, turned into soil after they die. It's a really fascinating process that one mortuary in Denver is at the forefront of, and that'll air in the next week or so. Nathan, I mentioned that you went to the NPR mothership in Washington, (laughs) D.C. Tell us what you were doing at NPR. Yeah, I was the midday editor of All Things Considered, and that meant editing many of the pieces you hear each day on this show while working closely with four of the best hosts in public radio, Ari Shapiro, Audie Cornish, Elsa Chang, and Mary Louise Kelly. It was my job to help them navigate their afternoons, provide oversight as they prepared their interviews, and be this link between them, the show producers, and the rest of the newsroom. Think the White House correspondents or the science desk. But Colorado beckoned, and you, your husband, and your daughter moved Mm -hmm. back, as we said, to Newcastle, Colorado. Nathan, I want you to tell the story of the magazines that reinforced your decision to come back. Yeah, I I even tweeted about that, how completely different life is between Colorado and Washington, D.C., and it was perfectly encapsulated in the magazine covers of Denver's 5280 and D.C.'s The Washingtonian. On 5280, there's a pristine photo of a man fly fishing in the Colorado wilderness with the word breathe in big font. 57 ways to reduce stress, simplify your life, and feel more confident this year. Then on The Washingtonian cover, there was a gleaming private jet with the headline, Washington Billionaires, who they are, where they live, and what that means for the rest of us. (laughs) And uh, well, that dichotomy wasn't the only reason I decided to return to Colorado. It was a a big push. That kind of work-life balance that Mm -hmm. we appreciate so much here. (laughs) Well, we're glad you're back in Colorado and for a little while on Colorado Matters. Thanks. I am super excited to be back on the show again. Nathan Heffel, he's filling in for Avery Lill for a little while, and you can follow him on Twitter at HeffelN. He's happy to hear your story ideas there. And that is Colorado Matters for today, which is on the air thanks to these fine folks. Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Avery Lill, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner, with special thanks to Nell London. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC at 20. I won't be late for this. Late for that. Late for the love of mine.